0: CHAPTER THREE OF THE FINDING OF HALDGREN BY CHARLES Diffin THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. UP FROM EARTH Chet had plenty of time in which to acquaint Pilot O'Malley with the facts. And when he had told his story, it did his sick and worried mind good to hear the explosive stream of expletives that came from the other's lips. Yet, despite the Irishman's anger, It was noticeable that he closed the tight door of the control room before he said a word. "'Only a skeleton crew,' he explained. "'Just the relief pilot and the engineers, and a man or two in the galley, and I trust them all. But you can't be too careful.' "'The commander,' he concluded, "'is getting to be more an emperor than a commander, and something's got to be done. Discipline we must have, tis true.' But this cowtowing to his Royal Highness and all of that devil a bit do I like it. If only you could show him up, Mr. Bullard, but of course you can't. I'm not so sure, Chet responded. What I told the big boss wasn't all bluff. Haldgren did go out five years ago this month. We have the record of a crescent liner's captain who saw Haldegren's little ship shoot through the R.A and go out as if it were going somewhere. And now we have these flashes. Do you see what that means, Spud? An S.O.S. Nobody but an Earthman would send that, and we wouldn't do it now. We would just press the lever of our emergency call, and every receiver within a thousand miles would pick up the scream of it. But we've had this Dunstan emergency transmitter less than four years. Haldgren knew only the old SOS, and remember this. Three dots, three dashes, and three dots just don't happen. They showed up on the moon. They were repeated the next night. Somebody sent them. Who was it? And Pilot O'Malley gave the only obvious answer. There's only yourself and Mr. Harkness and Pilot Haldgren that could have got there. Twas Haldgren, of course. What a pity that you can't go tis likely the poor boy needs help five years mused chet five long years since he left he must have landed safely and then what after five years comes a signal and that signal a call for help that no pilot worthy the name would disregard where are we bound he demanded abruptly russia said o'mally I disremember the name, tis on my orders, but I know it's a long way up north. Spud, said Chet, you're a rotten pilot. You're one of the worst I ever knew. Careless, that's your worst fault, and if anybody doubts that, they'll believe it after this trip. For, Spud, if you're any friend of mine, and I know you are, you're going to lose your bearings and kick this old sky hog a long way beyond that factory she is bound for. And you're going to set me down in a godforsaken spot in the Arctic, where I'm pretty sure I'll find a ship waiting for me. And if you just stick around for a while after that, you will see me take off for the moon. Then, if Haldgren is there--" Chet failed to finish the sentence. He was staring through a rear lookout where, over the arc of the Earth's horizon, could be seen a thin crescent moon about it drifting clouds made a halo. The eyes of Spud O'Malley followed chet's, and his imaginative faculties must have been stimulated by chet's words, for he gazed open-mouthed as if for the first time he visioned that golden scimitar as something more substantial than a high-hung light. He drew one long, incredulous breath before he answered what position sir say the word and i'll lose myself so bad we'll be over the pole and halfway to the equator again not that bad was chet's assurance just spot this ship over eighty-two fourteen north and ninety-three twenty east and i'll give you local bearings from there then to himself cold storage walt said He meant our old shop, of course. Probably had a hunch we would need it. But to the pilot he said only the one word, thanks, though the grip of his hand must have spoken more eloquently. The eastbound lanes of the 5,000 level saw them plod slowly along, while faster and better groomed ships slipped smoothly past. Then the red hull rose to level 12 and swung out upon the great circle course that would bear them more directly in the direction of the destination Chet had given. There were free levels higher up in which they could have laid a direct course, but the Irish pilot did not need Chet to tell him that the old hull would never stand it. Her internal pressure could never have been maintained at any density such as human lungs demanded. But they were on their way and Chet's customary genial expression gave place to one of more grim determination as he watched the white-flecked ocean drift slowly past below. Once a patrol ship spoke to them. Daylight had come to show plainly the silver hull, with its distinctive red markings of the service, that slipped smoothly down from above to hang poised under flashing fans like a giant hummingbird her directed radio beam flashed the yellow call signal in O'Malley's control room. Chet was beside him, and the two exchanged silent glances before O'Malley cut in his transmitter. He must give name and number. This signal was a demand that could not be disregarded, but on the old freighter was no automatic sender that would flash the information across to the other ship. The pilot's voice must serve instead number three seven g four two he thundered into the radio phone freighter of the intercolonial line without cargo for the love of pete shouted the loudspeaker beside him in volume to drown out the pilot's words are you sending this by short wave or are you just yelling across to me calm down you irish terrier then before the pilot could reply THE VOICE FROM THE SILVER AND RED PATROL SHIP DROPPED INTO AN EXAGGERATED MIMICRY OF THE O'MALLEY BROGUE. AND DID YOU SAY T'was a freighter you had there? SURE, I THOUGHT AT THE VERY LAST, T'was a fine big liner from the Orient and Transpolar Run. DROP DOWN HERE FROM THE HIGH LEVELS. ALL RIGHT, SPUD, ON YOUR WAY, BUT DON'T CROWD THE BOTTOM OF THE TWELVE LEVEL SO CLOSE. THIS IS O sixteen l "'Jimmy Maddox. Bye-bye. I'll report you. Okay.' Again Chet looked at the pilot silently before he glanced back at the vanishing ship, already small in the distance. He repeated the patrol captain's words. "'You will report us okay. Yes. Jimmy, you'll do that. And if they want to find us again, you can tell them right where to look.' "'I'm pushing her all I can, Mr. Bullard,' said Spud. "'Tis all she can do. "'And now, do you go into my cabin. "'There's two berths there, "'and we'll just turn in and sleep "'while my relief man takes his turn. "'But go in before I call him. "'There's not a soul on the ship besides ourselves "'knows that you are here.'" And in the cabin, a short time later, Pilot O'Malley chuckled as he whispered, "'I gave the lad his course, "'and Mac will follow it but it'll never take him near to the part of Russia he expects it to. Still, the record's clear, as far as he's concerned. I've got it in the log. Mac's a good lad, and I wouldn't have him get into trouble over this. In the freighter's cabin, the chronometer was again approaching the hour of 22. For nearly 24 hours, the ship had been on her plodding way, and lacking the A.D.D., the automatic destination detector, and other refinements of instrumental installations of the passenger ships, Pilot O'Malley had to work out his position for himself. And where a faster craft would have driven through with scarcely a quiver, the big ship trembled with the buffets and suction of wintry blast that drove dry snow like sand across the lookout glasses. The 12,000 level was an unbroken cloud of snow, a gray smother where the red ship's blunt and rusty bow nosed through. O'Malley clung to the chart table as the air gave way beneath them and the ship fell a hundred feet or more, before her racing fans took hold and jerked her back to an even keel. He managed to check his figures, then moved to the door of his cabin, opened it, and called softly. Chet was beside him in an instant. It had seemed best that he remain in hiding, and he knew what the pilot's call meant. ''Made it, did you?'' he exclaimed. ''Now I'll take a look about and pick up my bearing points.'' But one look at the ports and he shook his head. ''That's dirty,'' he told O'Malley, and his eyes twinkled as he felt the old ship rear and plunge with the lift of a driving gale. And how the old girl does feel it. She can't rip through and she can't go above. You've had some trips, bud. It's been mighty decent of you to go to all this. A flashing of yellow light on the instrument panel brought his thanks to a sudden halt. A voice startling in its sudden loudness filled the little room. Calling three seven G four two. Stand by for orders patrol o sixteen l sending acknowledge please chet's eyes were staring into those of o'malley that's jimmy maddox back on our trail he said now what has got them suspicious he glanced once more at the collision instrument he's right overhead at thirty thousand he added and there are more of them coming in from all sides now what the devil spud o'malley had his hand on the voice switch be quiet he commanded then spoke into the transmitter three seven g four two acknowledging he said and again chet observed how all trace of accent had departed from his voice it was an indication of the moment's tenseness and of the pilot's full understanding of their position the answering order was crisply spoken This was a different Jimmy Maddox from the one who had chaffed the Irish pilot some hours before. Stand by, we're coming down. Records at Hoover Terminal show two men reporting at pilot's gate under the number of your engineer, CG-41. Hold your ship exactly where you are. We're sending a man aboard. Chet had moved silently to the controls. The old multiple-lever instrument he knew it well. But he looked at Spud O'Malley, and waited for his nod of assent, before he presumed the trespass on another pilot's domain. Then he shifted two little levers, and the ship fell away beneath them as it plunged toward the earth. And Pilot O'Malley was explaining to the patrol ship captain as best he could for the rolling plunge of his careening ship. I can't hold her, sir, and you'd best be keeping away. It's storming fearful down here, and I can't rise above it. Keep clear, I'm warning you." The hum of their helicopters rose to a shrill whine as Chet drove the ship out and down through the smothering clouds. "'You must hear her fans on your instruments. You can see how we're pitching.' He switched off the transmitter for a moment and faced Chet, "'They've been checking close,' he stated. "'That was my engineer's number I gave you "'as we came through the gate, "'and, of course, he had given it before "'when he reported in. "'Now we're up against it.' "'The collision instrument was humming "'with the sound of many motors, "'and warning lights were giving their silent alarm "'of the oncoming ships. "'They're coming in,' Spud went on hopelessly, "'like a flock of kites in the tropics, WHEN ONE OF THEM'S FOUND SOMETHING DEAD, AND IT'S US THAT'S THE carcass. But Chet was not listening. The snowy clouds had broken for an instant. Their ship had driven through and beneath them. Through the wild, whirling, chaos of white, there came for an instant a rift, and far across the icy expanse Chet glimpsed a range of black hills. He spoke sharply to the pilot. That's Jimmy Maddox above us. Kid him along, Spud. Tell him we're coming up. Don't let him grab us with his magnets. This is putting you in a devil of a hole, old man. I'm sorry, but we've got to see it through now. You can never set this ship down, Spud. That patrol would be on our backs in a half a second, and they'd knock me out with one shot the minute I stepped outside. The clear space in the storm had filled again with the dirty, gray wind-whipped snow. Off at the right, a dim glow of distant fires, was the midnight sun, as it shone for a brief moment. One blast, more malignant in its fury than those that had come before, tore first at the blunt bow, then caught them amidships to roll the big, sluggish freighter, till her racked framework shrieked and chattered. Spud pointed through a rear lookout, where a silvery patrol ship flashed down through the clouds. ''There's Jimmy!'' he shouted. ''He's taking no chances of our landing. He's right on our tail!'' But Chet Bullard, his hands working at the control levers, was staring straight ahead into that gray blast, and his eyes were shining as he pulled back on a lever that threw them once more into the concealment of the whirling clouds above. ''Spud!'' he was shouting. Have you got a chute? You freighters have them sometimes. Get me a chute, and I'll fool them yet. I saw the shed, our hangars, our workshop. There's where our ship is." They were lost once more, in the snow that seemed to be driving past in solid drifts. Chet heard Spud shouting down a voice tube, and curiously it was plain that the Irish pilot had lost all tenseness from his voice. He was happy and as carefree as if he had found the answer to all his perplexing questions. He was calling an order for his relief pilot. "'Mac, do you break out two parachutes, me lad? Bring em up here and shake a leg. No, there's nothing to worry about. Devil a thing!' Then into the transmitter he shouted thickly as he switched the instrument on. "'Jimmy, boy, keep away, keep away, I'm telling you, or you'll have me Irish-temper disturbed, and I'm a devil when I'm roused. What do I know about your twin engineers?' "'One of them makes trouble enough for me. Now take yourself away, and don't step on the tail of this ship, or we'll go down to glory together, unless we go to another terminal, and find ourselves in hell.' and all of us covered with snow. Think how devilish conspicuous you'd be feeling." A discord of voices silenced his laughing banter, and on the instrument board, the warning light was flashing imperatively. Above the bedlam of voices one stood out, and all other commands were silent before the voice of authority. "'Silence. This is the commander of air. for O sixteen l Seize that ship, your magnets. Disregard damage. Get your magnets on that ship and hold her. We are coming down. Chet reached for the transmitter switch and opened it that their voices might not go beyond the control room. Lots of company. They seem pretty certain that they're on the right track. And the big boss himself is coming down to call. Can't you hurry those chutes? The control-room door was flung open as the figure of a young man stumbled through and dropped two bundles of cloth and webbing upon the floor. He clung to the door-frame as Chet threw the big freighter into a totally unexpected maneuver that rolled them down and away from a silver-bellied ship above. Then the levers moved again, and the ship went hard aport as Chet caught again one fleeting glimpse of a shadow below that could only be the markings of a building he had known well. "'Hold her there, Spud,' he shouted. "'He'll be back in a minute or two. He'll get us next time.' Chet was reaching for the straps of a chute. He had the webbing about him when he stopped to waste precious seconds in wide-eyed staring at the figure of Spud O'Malley. Spud was pulling at a recalcitrant buckle. He had motioned the relief pilot to take the controls, and now the bulk of a parachute pack hung awkwardly behind him. "'Spud!' Chet shouted. "'You're not stepping out, too. It's no sure thing with these old chutes. They're probably rotten. Stay here. Tell him I stuck you up with a gun. Tell him I made you bring me.' "'If you must talk,' said Spud O'Malley calmly and pulled a strap tight across his chest. "'Do you be trying to work while you talk? Get that harness on. If I let you stow away on my ship, you can do no less than take me along on yours.' A crashing impact drove the men to the floor in a sprawling heap. Chet pulled the last strap tight as he lay there. The lookouts were black above, where the belly of the patrol ship clung close. "'Jimmy knows how to obey orders,' said Chet, as he came to his feet. "'No cable magnets for Jimmy. He just smashed down on top of us, ripped off our fans, and grabbed hold. He was helping Spud to his feet as he spoke. "'Mac me, boy,' the pilot told his assistant, "'the log has it all, the whole story. There'll be no trouble for you at all.' He yanked quickly at the port opening switch, and the big steel disc backed slowly out of its threaded seat and swung wide. Chet drew back one involuntary step as a blast of icy wind drove stinging snow into his face. Then without a word he gave Spud O'Malley a joyous grin and threw himself out into the void. And later, as he released the chute where a wind was dragging him violently across an icy expanse, he was laughing exultantly to see another chute whirled into the enshrouding drifts, while the chunky figure of a man came scrambling to his feet that he might shake a fist into the air toward some hidden enemy and shout into the storm epithets only half heard. "'And be damned to you,' Chet heard him conclude, then was close enough to throw one arm about the figure and draw him after where he made his way toward a building that was like a mountain of snow. Spud must have marveled at the craft within, at her sleek, shining sides, the flat nose that ended in a black exhaust port. He was examining the other exhausts that ringed her round when Chet pulled out a lever from the streamlined surface and swung open an entrance port. He motioned Spud into the brilliantly-lighted interior, where nitron illuminators were almost blinding, as they shone on gleaming levers and dials of a control room like none that Spud O'Malley had ever seen. Chet had thrown the building's doors open wide. A whirling motor had drawn them back on hidden tracks. Now he closed the entrance port with care. Then he glanced at his instruments before he placed his hand on a metal ball. It hung suspended in air within a cage of curved bars. It was a modification of the highliner ball control, and it was new. Walt Harkness had had it installed to replace a more crudely fashioned substitute that had brought them safely back from the dark moon. The name of that new satellite was on Chet's lips as his thin hand rested delicately upon the ball. "'It's not the dark moon this time, old girl,' he told the ship. "'Though you've taken me there twice, but we're going up just the same. And I told the commander he hasn't patrol ships enough to hold us back.' His fingers were gripping the little ball, lifting it, moving it forward. And as he lifted, the ship itself, the silent cylinder, came roaring into life. Within the great building was a thundering blast that made the voice of the storm less than a whispering breath. It came but faintly through the heavily insulated walls. But Chet felt the lift of the ship, and that joyous smile was crinkling about his eyes as the silvery cylinder floated smoothly out of her shelter into the grip of the wind. His eyes were on an upper lookout, where clouds were driving away like a curtain unrolled. More cloud-banks were coming, but for a time the heavens were clear, where the great red hull of a rusty freighter hung helpless beneath a red and silver patrol ship whose magnets held fast to its prey. There were other shapes in the markings of the service that shot slantingly down. Chet thought again of the carrion-birds. Then he saw the gold star on the bow of a great cruiser and knew from that ship that the commander must be seeing their own below. He eased gently forward on a tiny ball, forward and forward, while the compensating floor of the control room swung up behind them and seemed thrusting up with unbearable weight. There were flashes from the cruiser above and flashes of red on the ice behind with fountains of shattered ice and rock. Detonite works its most terrible destruction on a surface that is brittle and hard. But of what avail are detonite shells against a craft whose speed builds up to something greater than the muzzle velocity of a shell? A silvery craft that sweeps out and out toward a black mountain range, then swings slowly up in a curve of sheer beauty that bends into banked masses of clouds, and ends. But within the control room, Chet Bullard, no longer master pilot of the world, but master, in all truth, of space, knew that his ship's flight was far from ending. He turned to grin happily at his companion. We're off, he shouted, and it's thanks to you that we made it. If Haldgren's alive, he'll have you to thank for it's you that has done the trick so far." But Spud O'Malley answered soberly, as he stared up and out into the blackness of levels he had never seen. "'I've helped,' he admitted. "'I've helped a bit. But it's a devil of a job for navigating that's ahead. And that's up to you, Chet Bullard. "'Tis no job for an old old Mahon like myself.'" Chet felt the lift of the repelling area as they shot through. Ahead was the black velvet night that he knew so well. Its silent emptiness was pricked through with bright points of fire. "'I found the dark moon,' he said slowly. "'And that you can't see at all. This other will be easy.' There was no boastfulness in the tone, and Spud O'Malley nodded as he glanced respectfully at the young man, who threw back his disheveled mop of hair from a lean face, and marked down some cryptic figures on a record sheet. Chet Bullard was on the job, and his passenger, it would seem, was satisfied that his unbelievable adventure was well begun. End of chapter 3